I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. From plant collector's delirium to the sweet taste of vanilla, the rarest wildflowers in Britain and hardy varieties you can grow at home. Today we're dedicating this episode of Gardening with the RHS to a rather diverse and often misunderstood plant family, orchids. The world of Orchidaceae covers over 700 genera and more than 25,000 individual species. But for all their beauty and fascination, orchids are notorious for being tricky things to look after. It's a fascinating and sometimes frustrating fact that they have these microscopic seeds that rely on partnerships with fungi in order to germinate in the wild. They need the right place, the right time and the right fungus. It's a lot to ask for a tiny seed and it gives them some rather precise needs. So why bother growing them at all? Well here to explore a centuries old love affair, alongside me Gareth Richards, we'll be hearing tips from Jeff Hutchings, one of the masters of terrestrial hardy orchid growing in the UK. We'll also be taking a look at the peculiar history of the lady slipper orchid. Cypripedium calceolus, a native wild plant brought to the brink of extinction by collectors before a secretive committee stepped in to quite literally put the plant under guard. But first I want to hand over to the RHS's own James Armitage. James is a botanist and editor of a publication considered to be a bit of a bible on the subject, The Orchid Review. My favourite orchid is probably the bird's nest orchid, Neotia nidus avis. And I say that because a few years ago, I did a survey of the wild plants of RHS Garden Wisley, and that was one of the plants that we found. It has no chlorophyll at all. Visually, it's not perhaps the most spectacular orchid you'll ever see. It's sort of got little brown spikes, completely lacking in green parts and in color generally, but it's charismatic nevertheless, but it puts up these typically orchidaceous spikes of flowers and some years, you can see 50 spikes and some use you can see three so it's a complete diva it throws an absolute strop when it's unhappy um, but when it's satisfied and feels it's being appreciated it's a wonderful thing to encounter so i always have fond memories of that orchid orchids are beautiful first and last and one of the things that makes them so compelling and captivating is that they're always no matter how diverse recognizably orchids so you can always tell, even if it's from a climber or an epiphyte or something that lives on the forest floor, they always have this characteristic look of the orchid. And they're incredibly diverse. The most diverse plants on Earth is 25,000 or so species, which is about 8% of all plants are orchids. Uh, but within that incredible diversity, they cover every continent except Antarctica and every habitat except open water and true desert. Within all that diversity, they still all look like orchids. So 
they're very easy to classify in a broad sense, but very difficult to classify in a narrow sense because so many of them hybridize and create entirely new things. Um, so they're plants of, of great contradiction, but always astonishing beauty. Orchids, although incredibly diverse, have hardly any economic uses. So there's vanilla, and in the Mediterranean, they grind up tubers of various species and make them into a very nutritious drink called Salep. But beyond that, there are very few commercial uses apart from, of course, horticulture. It's difficult to think of grasses or some similarly numerous group having so few uses. So that's just another way in which they're contrary and fascinating. Part of the, the cachet of, of orchids, apart from their great beauty, is that they are rather difficult to grow. Um, their seeds are tiny and have no what's called endosperm, so no food store of their own. Um, they rely on a fungi to germinate. So they're, they're really difficult to grow. And then once they germinate, they require quite specialist conditions often. And so there's a huge sort of sense of success in getting some of these things to flower. So that, I think, is part of their allure. And if things are too easy to obtain, then we, we don't value them. It's those things which are, which are difficult, which are challenging, which really uh, get us hooked. So there was a sort of orchid fever, perhaps in the Victorian age, where rich people with hot houses and gardeners would compete to grow the finest collection of orchids. And this was really to the orchid's detriment because people would send out plant hunters and they would strip great areas of tropical forests of their orchids and send them back to Europe. So like a lot of plants, they've suffered for their beauty, but it was a big thing amongst wealthy people to uh, grow orchids. And just as with tulips in even earlier times, people would spend vast amounts of money on their orchid collections, essentially to show off to their friends. Orchids have had a real change in how they're cultivated because of new technologies. So they're easier to propagate now and the hybrids that have been produced are easier to cultivate. So using micropropagation techniques, we can propagate them on mass and people can grow them on living room windows and buy them in supermarkets for 10 pounds or less. So they've changed from a plant that was very much for the elite, very much for the, the rich few, to plants which are available to everyone. And that's in the Orchid Review, the magazine that I publish, what we want to reflect that orchids are still orchids that are grown by the connoisseur and the real enthusiast. But there's also now available a huge range of orchids, which anyone can have a go at and enjoy. I think Catlias are rather lovely. And we've got an article in the Orchid Review and some new breeding in Japan on a new wave of Catlias. And they just are very perfect in their presentation and poise and, and quite sort of oriental and charming and feng shui. The fashion for them has been these perfectly round flowers, these sort of you know, symmetrical, almost like a cat's face shaped flower. But now they're starting, just starting to move away from that and breed in other species, which gives them sort of different shapes and very different colours, actually. So if I were getting started with them, I think I would go for a catlia. If you want to get started with orchids, one good way to do it is through our free The Orchid Review newsletter, which is available on the Orchid Review pages of the RHS website. Thanks to James Armitage there. Do check out the free newsletter he mentioned via our website at rhs.org.uk forward slash orchid review. And take a look at the magazine itself. 
It's released quarterly by the RHS and there's plenty in there for beginners and connoisseurs alike. I've not grown Cattleyas myself, but there are a few other orchids that I'm growing at the moment. So I grow something called Pleone, which is a hardy orchid, best grown in a greenhouse. You can grow it in a rockery as well. They're beautiful little spring flowering plants. They get to about four inches, 10 centimeters high, and they have these incredible classic orchid looking flowers with these amazing fringed centers to them. And they come in really, really vivid, almost neon pinks with splashes of yellow and orange. They're an absolutely gorgeous thing. And the other one that I grow is a real classic, it's Phalaenopsis, the moth orchid. And these are brilliant houseplants because they tolerate the warm, dry air that we have in our centrally heated homes really, really well. And on my desk here at the moment, I'm looking at a beautiful, small flowered cultivar that I got from the RHS shop, actually. And as James said, orchids are now much, much easier to propagate. And one thing that's done with the commercially raised ones, in many instances, is something called micropropagation in a sterile lab. You, in effect, take cuttings from the growing point of the plant and it's an amazing process. So from just a tiny little scrape from the center of a plant, you can make literally thousands upon thousands of orchids. You grow them on in lab conditions. That means nothing's collected from the wild. And it also means that they're a hell of a lot cheaper. They're not something you can pull apart, divide. You can't take leaf cuttings, but by having micropropagation, that's kind of democratized orchids and brought them to a mass audience. But it's interesting that orchids are only really grown for their beauty. As James said, there aren't very many edible ones. You don't grow them for timber. You don't grow them for shade. We just grow them for their beautiful, beautiful flowers. But the one orchid that is really widely grown, the commercial scale for food, is vanilla. And it reminds me of a piece that we featured last year about a young man called Edmund Albius. Here's American horticulturist and historian Abra Lee to tell his story. If the vanilla bean was a Hollywood movie, it would be a thriller. It would be the rise and fall of empires, intrigue, jealousy. There would be villains and heroes, riches and tragedy. Edmund was a enslaved African child born on the island of what back then was called Bourbon or Bourbon and it's now called Reunion. When he was born, he was the property of a lady named Elvire Bellier Beaumont. He was in her care for a few years of his young life, and then she gave Edmund to her brother named Ferriol. And the reason she gave her brother to Ferriol is because her brother owned a plantation. And so from there, as a little boy, Edmund would follow Ferriol around the plantation, look at the fruits, look at the vegetables, and then look at the unique plants. And one of them was the vanilla orchid. One day he's doing this daily walk with Ferriol as usual. And at this point, he's 12 years old. It's 1841. He was born in 1829. And vanilla had never fruited outside of Mexico, like never, ever, ever in the history of the world had it gotten to fruit. It had definitely flowered but nothing happened. So they're walking around and Ferriol can't believe his eyes. He sees fruit on his vanilla orchid and he's stunned. And what stuns him even more is what happens next. Edmund says, I did that. I pollinated those fruit. Ferriol doesn't believe him at first, but a few days later, he sees more vanilla bean pods on other plants and he asked Edmund to show him the technique that he used to pollinate the plant. 
Those orchids were popping, <laughs> like vanilla beans everywhere. The slave owner of the plantation says, hey, Edmund, show me what you did since you said you did it. What he does is that he takes the lip of the vanilla orchid flower and pulls it back. And then he lifts up, which is almost like a cap or a shield that's over the stamen. And then he takes his finger and gently presses the anther and stamen together. And when he does this, then the plant becomes pollinated and the shield will fall back down. And the very thing about vanilla orchids is that they're so labor intensive and you have to get this pollination technique that Edmund did. You have to do it very quickly. So what I mean by that is that you have to pollinate this plant on the morning that the vanilla orchid flowers before noon. And once you do it, it's done and then the flower falls off. So after the flower falls off, it takes about nine months for the pods to develop. So it's literally just like birthing a baby when you get a vanilla bean in front of you, that's how long it takes. What Edmund did is that he enabled vanilla to become a commercialized crop. Look at the wealth, the joy, the recipes that this 12-year-old orphan enslaved child has created through his innovation, his innovation as a 12-year-old. The story of hidden horticultural hero Edmund Albius, as told by Abra Lee there. If you want to hear more about Edmund, you can listen to our episode originally released on the 27th of May 2021 for the full piece. And it's amazing that, you know, a 12-year-old boy with no education did that. He did something that the leading scientific minds of the day couldn't do. And, you know, every time you have vanilla ice cream, you have cakes, we have all kinds of delicious sweet food, we've got Edmund Albius to thank. And since the work of early pioneers like him, advancements in science have made the world of orchids far more accessible to all of us today. Now that cultivation is better understood, a wider range of orchids is available to buy and with the right knowledge, you can get some really interesting results in your garden at home. Jeff Hutchings from Laneside Hardy Orchids in Preston, one of the few orchid nurseries of its kind, has built up an esteemed career as one of the most knowledgeable experts in the industry. We caught up with him to hear how he's been helping gardeners get growing. I'm Jeff Hutchings. I have run Laneside Hardy Orchids for 20 years now this year, starting from absolutely no knowledge whatsoever in 2002 and building up as I went along. One of the major problems I found, not just in the beginning, but even today, is that people equate orchids with difficulty because they grow indoor ones and kill them. And gardeners don't seem to be fully appreciative of the fact that there are, I think, some 65 native species growing wild in the UK. One of my favourite sayings, which I use every time I've done a talk, is that you have to avoid killing with kindness. You know, people, again, think about indoor ones and all the things they have to do with the outdoor ones. They need to survive under their own steam and not being too doctored by ourselves. It's also that with the outdoor ones, there are different types. We've actually got some adornment tuberous species, such as our bee orchid. We've got winter dormant finger tuberous species, such as the marsh orchids. And then we've got species like cypripediums, 
which are rhizomatists, and they're winter dormant, and they've all got a different requirement in order to grow efficiently and survive. And that is the key element of putting them in the right situation at the right time. The next area that you've got to look at as a gardener is what is the garden like? What is there? What amount of shade is there? Is it a heavy clay? Is it a light sandy soil? We all then have to make decisions as to which of the plants you could grow. You can divide the orchids up really into two groupings. And I call one group in the garden worthy and the other group are really the enthusiast orchids. The garden worthy grouping are things like calanthes, latillas, and to a certain extent, although they're more difficult, the cypripediums plus the dactylizers, the marsh orchid group. In a garden where you've got some shade, in particular a damp shady areas, which are protected from winter frosts, then Calanthe are an ideal plant. These are native of northern parts of China, Japan, etc. And in many areas of the country, they will thrive quite happily in the garden. In dry soils, in full sun, the ideal orchid to try are the blatillas. These flower in midsummer, and they are pseudobulbs, which will make a large clump and have a flower spike, anything up to three quarters of a metre tall. The most difficult one uh, of them is really the cypripediums, which in the UK are not easy to grow in our ordinary soil. You would normally put them into an inorganic mix in a very shady, cold spot. This is one of the difficulties that people think, oh, if it's going to get that cold, well, it's going to harm them. Whereas most of the cypripedium species actually come from areas of the world where in the winter they may well be down to minus 20. But overall, I would suggest the The most easy to start with that you could plant in various areas of garden are the dactylorhiza group. And the beauty of them for many lucky people is that they self-seed everywhere. My favorite uh, way of introducing orchids, in particular native orchids, is to develop a wildflower meadow in the garden. Now, A true meadow has grass in it, so that will be our start point. So if you've got an existing lawn in the garden, preferably one that hasn't had too much fertiliser on it, the starting point really is going to be early spring or early autumn when you're going to scarify it like mad, knock out a large proportion of the grasses. You can also, having scarified it, sow yellow rustle seed, which hopefully will germinate over the winter and the following summer will parasitise the grasses that are growing. So it keeps it fairly thin. What I would then do, what I do with, with my customers, is that I use the BSBI maps to find out what native orchids are or have grown in those areas. And if the garden hasn't been 
over-cultivated, so the underlying soils are those soils that are in the surround, I would then be recommending that they actually use those species from that area. And what we do is to plant the different species when they are dormant or perhaps when they are just beginning to grow, but certainly not when they're in full growth. Sourcing the plants is not easy, with the exception perhaps of a local old-fashioned nursery who might have had a few dactylorizers and they may produce you know, 30 or 40 a year that are saleable. You won't find our native species readily available. You will need to look online and see who has produced plants. But I would always recommend look very carefully and buy mature plants. See if you can get to see photographs of what's being offered, because you don't want to buy anything that is small, not until you've got experience. Now, with what I call the garden-worthy orchids, there are other sources, and in, indeed last year, one of the supermarkets was selling cypripediums, platillas, and calanthi. Now, this is fine, apart from one thing. They were selling them in flower in late June, early July. Now, the only one of those three that should have been in flower at that time are the platillas. The other two have been held back in cold store to flower later. So always be a bit wary look at the normal flowering time and try and buy at that time. I'd finish off by saying what I, after 20 years, still find exciting, and that is the success stories of people I know who I've met. A couple of examples are Down House, Charles Darwin's house, where some four or five years ago, the head gardener, approached me, he wanted some mature green-winged orchids to put back in, which apparently had been there in Charles Darwin's day. And he duly planted, I think, something like 30 or 40 tubers. And last year, he sent me a very exciting email to say not only had they survived, but in fact, the seed was germinating and the patch that they had was expanding rapidly. So this is the way I would like to see things going. More plants going back in. People deciding that they want to have a go. They can start very small, but from that, you know, it could be after five or ten years, very, very successful. Thanks to Jeff Hutchings from Laneside Hardy Orchids. Have a look at Jeff's website, it's full of tips, and he's also written some books and guides which I would highly recommend seeking out. Today, he's also increasingly involved in the preservation of orchids in the wild, which brings us on to our next story. We've alluded to the orchid delirium of the Victorian era, a period where the madness of flower collecting put many species at risk. But this isn't just a problem of bygone times and in, of other countries. There are still orchids that are so rare and at risk of theft as recently as 2013, specimens at the Chelsea Flower Show were kept under full-time police guard. So, meet the lady slipper orchid, Cypripedium calceolus. Colin Newlands, a long-time member of something called the Cypripedium Committee, is here to tell its story. 
Well, in terms of you know what I look like, if I'm in the shoes, if you want to put it that way, of the lady slipper orchid, I'm probably one of the most striking plants you'll ever see in the British Isles. I've got a beautiful yellow lower lip, which is um, the slipper. So that's how it gets its name, the yellow slipper, with magenta-coloured sepals and petals, which stand up from the lip and out to the side of the lip. And I've got lovely sort of green pleated leaves, about four or five pleated leaves. And I stand probably about um, a foot to a foot and a half tall, if I'm well grown. And compared to most of the other members of the British flora, it really is something that looks as if it's come out of the tropics. And I suppose in many ways, it's because the flower looks so exotic that number one, it was hard to miss when people started looking for it. And of course, once things, something captures the imagination, people wanted to have it in their collection, whether dried or growing in their gardens. And so, you know, that was the sort of the start of the decline of uh, Lady Slipper in Britain, unfortunately. Well, the scientific name of Lady Slipper orchid is Cypripedium calceolus and the calceolus really refers to the habitats in northern Britain where it was first found to be growing and it tends to like rocky limestone lightly wooded or lightly scrubby habitats often on cool shady slopes where the soil doesn't dry out so it used to sort of grow from North Lancashire South Cumbria through the Yorkshire Dales to the North York Moors and up towards the Castle Eden Dean area in the northeast the history of Lady Slipper in Britain really goes back to the early 17th century. And once people knew about the orchid and where to find it, and where to look for it, local people would often go out and collect them and, and sell them. And there's even something I came across recently where somebody was paying one guinea for every specimen that was sent to him. So you can imagine in those days, that was a lot of money. So people would scour the habitats to try and find as many as they possibly could to send on in order to sort of make a little bit of money for themselves you know and this this really continued until well by the early part of the 20th century by 1917 it was really considered extinct in the wild i mean there were rumors that there were a few places where it was clinging on but nobody really knew where those were but in 1930 it was rediscovered at a site in the yorkshire dales now the thing about it is that if you were to make a, such an amazing discovery in this day and age, you'd really want to get it out on social media, you want to tell everybody about it. But thankfully the person or persons who found it back then realized what they'd found. And they realized that because of the scarcity and the interest in Lady Slipper, they had to keep it a secret. So for the decades after 1930, very, very few people knew about where it had been located. They did visit it in most years and they sort of kept a record of when it flowered and how healthy it was and how well it was doing. But unfortunately, as with any secret, it tends to get out one way or the other. In 1969, there was a group of concerned naturalists representing various sort of uh, natural history organisations who sort of got together and said, well, look, what we're going to do about it. And it was from those early discussions back in the late 60s that that really started what you now know as the, the Cypripedium Committee. And, you know, from the early 70s, that site, there was a, a warden on site 24 hours a day during the growing season to, in order to protect the plant. You know, the, you had to have rather draconian measures in order to make sure that was the case. And we still have to do wardening today. Well, I've been involved with the Cypripedium project for, well, probably around about uh, 20 years. I first got involved when I worked for English Nature, who are now Natural England, 
Yeah, it's been a great privilege because it's been great to be part of a process of actually putting it back into the British countryside. I've not been involved with the growing side in the micropropagation lab or anything like that. That's an, an extremely specialised part of the programme that goes on down at uh, Kew Gardens. But my involvement has been more about putting plants out into the wild onto reintroduction sites, working with landowners and some very dedicated volunteers who go out to look after the plants that are in their charge. But also I have been involved with the growing on of, of plants that come up from Kew. So when we receive them, we put them into a special compost and we grow them on in cold frames for a number of years and we look after them and we check them. I think one of the very heartening things is that when you take a plant that you put out and it survives and it not just survives, but it goes on to flower. And some of the ones that we've put out have actually produced seed pods. You know, as of last year, you know, we have around about 500 shoots of Lady Slipper coming up across various sites. And last year we counted over 150 flowers. So the message does need to go out that there are quite a lot of flowers out there now, quite a lot of Lady Slipper orchids out there, but they're in places that need to be left alone for them to spread and expand. And at some point in the future, there will be more places where people can go and see them. But I do look forward to a day when, you know, the Lady Slipper Orchid isn't something that is on every botanical person's sort of tick list to, to see because it's so rare, but because it's just a nice plant to see and there's lots of places to go and see them. You know, that's the sort of ultimate aim. A huge thanks to Colin Newland of the Cypripedium Committee. And the Lady Slipper story, it really is a parable for just how fragile the natural world is, but hopefully as gardeners we can learn from this story and help restore plants like this from the ills of the past. As Colin said, if you're lucky enough to stumble across the Lady Slipper orchid in the wild, you should probably keep it to yourself. But don't forget there are lots and lots of other wild orchid species that are much less rare and threatened. If you want to go and see them, spring and early summer is a brilliant time to do it. Have a look at your local Wildlife Trust website and of course, always follow the countryside code to make sure that you don't damage the very thing you're looking for. Well, that's about it for this episode of the podcast. Before I go, I just wanted to mention that there's an orchid show at RHS Garden Wisley from Friday the 25th to Sunday the 27th of March, where growers from across the country will be exhibiting their finest orchids and providing expert advice. We're also publishing a book, RHS Orchids by Charlotte Brooks, on the 8th of April, and it has more than 130 works of exquisite contemporary and historical orchid art. And back at home this week, I'm gonna be feeding my spring bulbs. I've got lots of little crocuses, irises, daffodils, and because they're in pots in particular, they really, really appreciate feed because I want them to flower again next year. So I'm dusting off my old bottle of tomato feed from last year, and I'm gonna give them a really good feed. That will just help build the flowers and build their strength up for a really good display next year. And of course, orchids as well. House plants now are starting to grow as the daylight gets longer, temperatures warm up, so it's perfect time to start feeding and always use a specialist orchid food for best results. So until next time from me, Gareth Richards, thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.